Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Our scripture this morning, you can have a seat, sorry about that. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 2, and it is verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Maddie. Hey, I want to begin. If I can get that first slide up there, Wendy. I want to show you a secret code this morning. Secret code. Try, uh, try closing down the whole program and, and reloading it, if you will, because we can't go on without the secret code. <laughs> hey, well, good morning. We are in a message right now called A Shared Life. And what that's really trying to, to communicate is that Christianity, although in our culture, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this, in our culture, we think very individualistically, Right? But Christianity is meant to be a shared life, something that we do together. And in fact, uh, a lot of times, um, even a lot of the things that we're encouraged to do, like serving together, evangelism, we think very individualistic. We think about what we're supposed to be doing rather than that's something we get to do together. So that's a little bit of an introduction. Now I can show you the secret code. All right. So by a show of hands, don't say it out loud, but I have a show of hands. If you think you might have some idea what this code stands for, would you raise your hand? All right. So let me, let, me, let me say this. Let's say I told you that it had something to do with community. 
community, what would that make you think of? Just think about that. What would that make you think of? What, what would that make you? Community. Okay, it has nothing to do with community. Okay, but I wanted you to think about community for a second. Because when it comes to defining community, you know, even in the title, we, we threw around the idea of the title in this message, thrown in the community, but community has, in some contexts, such a broad meaning, and it's been, it's been used to say so many things, some positive and some even negative, that it loses somehow its, its meaning. And yet, that's what we're talking about. What does it mean to have an identity, not as individuals, but an identity that's corporate, that's about our togetherness, okay? Well, let me show you something else about this code. Ah. Oh, okay. Now it becomes a little clearer. You have a little bit better idea what that code was really all about. By the way, it's still not anything about community, as you'll see, although there'll be an illustration perhaps. So we learn a little bit more from this picture about this. If I move to the next picture, we might move, you know, learn something a little bit more. See, it's in a lot of the food that we eat, right? Or in some cases, the food that we wear, okay? So now we're getting a little bit better idea and a little bit better understanding. And now I'm going to show you another picture, and it's going to come together a little bit for you, okay? It's sugar, okay? Now, why do I put this up there? This is my feeling about community, about shared life. See, I'm very familiar in our culture, and there's a lot of reasons why this is the case. But so just for example... We are, our families now and are not just scattered across the United States, but I know so many people whose families are scattered all over the world. And we become very transient. And it used to be that people could say, well, you know, I, I'm on the same farm that my great-grandfather was on, right? And, and now, you know, for, for, for people who are here who are in the military, you're moving every three years sometimes, right? It's very transient. And, and there's something about our culture and the fast pace of it where we can pick up relationships and drop them so quick that while we might have, uh, you know, 2,000 friends on Facebook, I don't. Maybe you do. I don't. But if you have 2,000 friends on Facebook, but how deep do you go into community, what community means? And as a person who's grown up in this culture, I feel like sometimes... I've, I've, I've got a little bit of a hint of it. I mean, I came from a, a fairly healthy family. I'm, I'm experiencing a little bit of a healthy family. I've been a part of this church for, for coming up in like 14 years or something like that. So I, f- I feel like I have a taste, but, but sometimes I feel like I'm, you know, back at this level. I, I, you know, I, I feel like a molecule, but I don't have a full picture of what it looks like. I don't think any of us have a full picture of what it looks like. Partly because there's a spiritual reality that God calls us into that we have to grow into. And part of it is we're products of our age, are we not? Learning how to engage in community. So let me illustrate this in a couple ways. I was reading about a professor who was meeting with his colleagues. They were getting ready for a new academic year at their institution. And he stood up and he warned people because they had foreign exchange students coming from Africa. And he, he warned his colleagues, he said, don't expect them to get good grades in your class. Don't expect them to answer your questions. 
And the reason is, is because in their culture, they value community, not standing out. See, that's unheard of in America. It's all about separate. It's, it's always, you know, how can I make myself unique? How can I stand out from the crowd? How can I, you know, in their culture, it is so ingrained that you don't go outside a community, that you don't get straight A's. You don't, you don't show that you're the smart person in class because you're part of a community. A lot of times in our culture, when you're trying to get to know somebody, we ask them, so what do you do? See, who are you as an individual? What specific task or role do you have? Not, so tell me about where you come from and what your family history is like. See, we, we're just, it's ingrained so much so that we can hardly see it. And you would think if community is a really good thing, that our hearts would just run to it, wouldn't it? We would just want to be involved with it. I, I can't remember where I heard it, but I, I've known families who've done foster care. And this was a family that tried to have meals together, and they got a foster child in. And uh, the foster child at mealtime would want to go hide in their room because the whole idea of the intimacy and coming together at the mealtime was so foreign to them that while it may have been attractive, it was scary. They wanted to hide out in their room. So, as we come into this whole series, and I, if you've missed some of the messages, particularly the first week, because I think it frames it well, I encourage you to go back and listen to Todd's message. Because we've been brought into a new community that's not because, and we're going to see this in our passage a little bit today, but it's not because of something we did, but it's, it's God taking initiative, acting, and calling, and doing something in us that brings us into this new reality, okay? So we're looking at um, first, first Peter. I'm going to jump ahead here. We're looking at First Peter, and um, that passage that uh, Maddie read, I'm, I'm really going to land ultimately on the last couple of verses she read, but I, I want to spend actually the majority of my message just setting it up, helping us to understand where Peter's moving with his argument, Okay? So I'm going to look at this, this very first verse and who it's addressed to. If I can get, there it is. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to the church that's scattered on all these different communities in Asia Minor, okay? And... Uh, couple things we should know about this. Because Peter, he, he's, he's, he's grown up a Jew. And um, as we study these people that he's writing to, and there's clues within the text here, but in the other writings as well, it's not just Jews he's writing to, but he's going to take the language of the Jewish culture and Jewish worship and extend it then to his Gentile listeners, his Gentile readers. It's not that there's not Jews, but there probably are some Jews. It's probably some Christians who were God-fearing Gentiles, people who were familiar with synagogue worship, uh, worship in the temple, and, and now are Christ followers, okay? But they're scattered all over Asia Minor, okay? Um, let me check my notes here, see if there's anything else I wanted to say about that. All right, <clears throat> so when you sit down to write a letter, do you, you, maybe you do like me, okay? 
I don't know when the last time I wrote a letter. <laughs> but you write, dear whomever. And then now you've got to start your letter. You've got to think of, okay, what, what is it I'm going to write about? Peter does that too. We're going to learn a lot in the first few verses about why he's writing this letter to these, okay? So I'm going to read a couple of the verses because I don't have them on the screen, but, and then I'll, I'll throw the one up there. This is how he starts. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And now I'm going to put the next verse up on the screen here, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So as you continue to read in 1 Peter, what you see is, is people who are suffering, people who are outcasts. And as you study 1 Peter and as you study church history, what you realize is Christianity was spreading among what we would call the lower class. It was spreading amongst people who were slaves, people who had no citizenship. Uh, they weren't Roman citizens. They didn't have opportunity. And they were being subjugated. They were, they were being abused. And sometimes um, there's hints in the letter that, that as, as Christians they were being abused sometimes. Okay? In fact... I'll just read a couple of verses here. I mean, it, it goes on and on in 1 Peter. It says, this is uh, 1 Peter 4, chapter, or, uh, verse 12. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Okay? And a little later on. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So, so, there's a continual addressing of the fact that life is tough for them. And from an outward perspective, their Christianity, I mean, from a cultural perspective, it, it's a religion for losers, okay? And uh, it, it's, you know, it's, it's people you don't want to associate with. And uh, so that's, that's the reality of their situation. So what does Peter do? And I... I'll read this next verse here and a little later. So he goes on, and by the way, in the verses that follow, real quick, he talks about that they're suffering. Rather than being some sign that they're doing something wrong, their suffering is going to result in blessing, right? Because there's going to be vindication. It's going to be demonstrated that their faith that they're expressing in Christ is going to result in praise and glory. He compares the suffering. He says, look, the suffering you have is, is earning in God's economy way more. It's not even worth comparing to the things that we value most in this economy, like gold, that kind of thing. See? So the suffering, there's value in it, okay? But ultimately, this is verse 13, we get down there, it says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... Set your hope on the grace that God is going to deliver you and give you a good job this next week. 
right? And you're going you're gonna to find that house you're looking for. Your kids are going to get in the right school. Things are going to change for you. So just hang in there. That's not what he says. Right? Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So it just strikes me in this letter over and over again, the main emphasis, there is stuff in there about, you know, in, in chapters 4 and 5, he says, hey, cast your cares on our God, our Heavenly Father, because he cares for you. It's not that. But in a lot of the talk about suffering, he's not talking about some kind of immediate relief if we just pray harder, if we do more Bible study, God will, God's going to bless you, right? That's not what it's about. It's about endure. You're going to be vindicated. And when Christ comes back, you know, and he, by the way, is our example over and over again. We see this. He reminds us of the suffering that Jesus did out of love for us. And, and we get to be like Jesus. We get to suffer out of love. In their situation, they're the, you know, using old Simon and Garfunkel, they're the sat upon, spat upon, ratted on, right? I mean, it, it's not just that they have health issues and they have a jerk at work. It's that culture, the society views them as outcasts. And yet in their situation, Peter says he's, he's holding up when Christ comes again. That's when the vindication is. And what struck me about this when I read it is that in Christianity, both within the walls, it seems like, of our churches, but from the outside, Christianity is oftentimes portrayed as that religion that makes life better now. Isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of Christian books out there about how to pray to get blessing. As though Christ hasn't blessed us enough already. How to pray to get healing. And that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But it seems like it's an overemphasis of that. And it struck me, and it's been striking me. And this is interesting. I don't know. I'm curious if anybody else has this experience. But lately, Todd's, but this is a, this is a traditional saying or a, a traditional sort of chant in the church, right? Christ died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. Now, I'll be honest, when I hear that, I say, yeah, Christ died. I mean, I'm, my, my whole livelihood, right? Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. And it's, it's almost like this foreign idea because it doesn't get stressed in our culture. Christianity in America is, is really about my life better now. And if I can get my life straightened out with Christ, my 401k is going to be good. Right? I mean... The idea of heaven is great as long as it happens after I die, right? Because I've got retirement plans here. I've been planning, right? Is that not a reality? But when we say Christ has died, Christ has risen, he is coming again. He might come again before I get done with my message. It's going to be so long. You see what I'm saying? That reorients our life in a different way. It's striking that Peter does not say, look, if you, just, if you do these things, God's going to make your life comfortable. It's going to work out. Rome's going to fall. 
Never mind that it's going to be in 200, 300, 400, 500 years, right? No, it's like Christ is our hope, and when he comes back, we're going to be vindicated. And the difficulty you're facing now is going to result in praise, glory, and honor for Jesus and by reflection, me. I'm going to be vindicated. It's not that kind of vindication, by the way. It's like, nah, 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 nah. I was right, and all you people who laughed at me were wrong. It's not that kind of vindication. It's vindication that where you put your trust rings true now for all to see. For all to see. So how can we learn? By the way, if you ask people, I've never heard anybody that I can remember ever say First Peter was their favorite book of the Bible, right? But I did read this week that for churches that are in Yugoslavia, I mean, some places that are in the former Eastern Bloc countries and things like that, that's their favorite book. First Peter, it gives them hope. That's their favorite book. I heard a speaker one time who travels all over the world. He goes to conferences all over the world. A lot of conferences in the United States, these big conferences, frankly, they're filled with people who come from suburban churches, who have a little bit of money. They come to these churches, and he said, they come to these conferences, and their worship times are about, oh, I'm hungry, I'm thirsting, God, we, we are, you know, our, our situation... And he goes, then I go to third world countries and visit their churches. You know what they sing, what they sing about? Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. So I'm just wondering, is there something for us as a community of faith to learn in terms of our identity? One of the things that draws us together is a shared, our shared story, our shared destiny. And this realization that our hope is not simply found in the here and now. And if it is, frankly, it's easier to take pharmaceuticals. Okay? Right? It's easier to take pharmaceuticals. But we want to be people who are looking for when Jesus comes back. And that we would rather him come back today, even if we don't get to fulfill our retirement dreams. Okay? It's not that that other stuff is bad. It's just that this is better by a long shot. So, so Peter, he's encouraging them. In fact, let me just read real quickly the very one of the last verses he writes. And the God of all grace, who called you to an eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, see, he, brings it up, he keeps bringing it up, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. Peter doesn't offer them a false hope that if you just trust in Jesus, it's going to work out. Well, maybe it is. But we wait for Jesus Christ to be revealed. And if we believe that Jesus died, that he rose again, but we don't believe he's coming back, we're to be pitied. We're to be pitied. So one of the things that draws us together in the shared life of worship is we're looking forward to the day when Jesus Christ is revealed. His glory is revealed. We are vindicated. 
and the healing and the wholeness that he brings to us and to the whole world is coming. And it's with that hope that we move forward and bring hope, healing, and wholeness into our world as we are ambassadors of that hope that's coming. So Peter goes on in his message, and he, he, he begins to talk about some therefores. Therefore, be holy. Therefore, remain firm in love. Therefore, make sure that you're loving deeply, loving one another deeply, okay? Um, and at the beginning of chapter 2, he, he talks about um, craving the Word like, like a newborn baby. So craving that spiritual milk that we get from being plugged into God's Word, okay? And then we get into the passage that uh, Maddie read for us this morning. And I want to slow down here for a little bit. So Peter launches, again, Peter's going to use language that he's familiar with in Jewish worship. And one of the things that we need to understand, God's always in the business, as you look through the, the pattern of humanity, starting in Genesis, when God gives us life, we chose death, right? Um, Adam and Eve chose to, to disregard God, but God's promises is not only he's going to bless them, but he's going to ultimately indwell them. Genesis chapter 12, when we come there, it's after Babylon and all, or not Babylon, excuse me, the Tower of Babel and all that problem. You remember the promise he makes to Abraham? He goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you into a nation, a nation that's my very own, but through you and through Israel, I'm going to bless every nation on earth. Peter is a witness to how God is doing that. He's a witness to see how God has gone out. If you remember Peter, he was the one that God called to go and speak to Cornelius. It blew Peter's mind. If you read Acts, it blew his mind because it was outside of his Jewish heritage and experience and what he thought God could do. And what God is doing is he's not forgetting about Israel, but he's broadening because it's always God's desire to redeem humanity to himself, right? So this is Peter, and he says, as you come to him, the living stone, and in just a minute you're going to see, um, he, he quotes some scripture, but there's this idea that, that a stone is laid in, in Jerusalem. It's, just, it's the cornerstone of the temple, the presence of God, and it represents God's promise to Israel for a kingdom and for a king. And it begins with this cornerstone, right? But in passages both in the Old Testament, and it, he personifies this stone. It's not just an actual stone that's part of the building, but now it's a living stone. And, and Jesus is the promise. He's the living stone. As you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him. Now, as you, as you read Peter, everything, he has this backdrop. Here's people who have been rejected. Who in their culture says that they are outcasts. That they're losers. So he describes Jesus as the one who was rejected. But precious to God. The one that God chose. God's own Son. Rejected by it, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, like precious stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And so a spiritual house, is, it's, it's a temple. And as you read the Old Testament, 
we know theologically, right, God is everywhere. He, he knows no bounds. But there's certain places that he chooses to focus his presence. And the big thing with Israel was, and, and the whole sacrificial system and the temple worship was, God was going to be with his people. And because of his holiness and all this, all this stuff that they had to do, and you had this priestly class that the priest had special access and things that they had to do because it was the presence of God right there with the people of Israel. They were special. They were his special possession. Well, now God has extended that. And instead of it being a building, the living stone, Jesus, and we are living stones, the presence of Jesus is now with us as we gather corporately. So it may seem pretentious when we gather and we say, God, we trust that you are here. We need our hearts to be open to you. I mean, how is it that we can call to the creator of the universe to be present with us here as we gather on a Sunday? It's because of what he's done, his promise, his word has revealed. So we gather, we trust that God is able to do the things that he said he did. And we, like living stones, so Peter's writing to all these Christians scattered, right? But they live in communities, meet in communities. And by the Holy Spirit, Peter's addressing us. We are a gathering in this community. We are God's precious living stones that he's knitting together so that his presence can be among us. That's a corporate thing, not an individual thing. That's a corporate thing. I'm going to talk about uh, priests and stuff a little bit more, but offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable God through Jesus Christ. He doesn't go into a lot of detail about what those spiritual sacrifices are, but we can look at other places and recognize it's, it's, it's a living sacrifice now. Romans talks about that rather than we're, we're not laying dead animals, right, on the altar, but we're offering ourselves. It's our affections. It's our values. It's where we spend our time. We're offering it now because to God as a spiritual sacrifice. And here's the thing. When we get together, uh, I don't know if you noticed or not, but I hit some wrong chords. I, I don't play very perfectly at all. And I sing flat or sharp sometimes. And, you know, sometimes when we gather, we kind of fumble in our ability to, to, to check in and see how somebody's doing. You know, it's like, I want to see how this person's doing, but it comes off slightly awkward. And like you're, uh, maybe like you're um, barging into their life and they haven't invited you. Or, or you're trying to apologize for something and it's not. But as we, as we do these things corporately, it says, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when I offer who I am in all its imperfections, when I sing flat, when I ask and I say I'm sorry, but I don't do it quite right, but I'm doing my best and I do it through Jesus, you know what it comes off as? It's like we're rock stars, to put it in contemporary vernacular, right? It's perfect. Because as we offer it through Christ, our high priest, it becomes acceptable to God. You know what God accepts? only perfection. But as we gather 
as we gather and, and however, you know, pathetic we might think as we're as a church, or if you're a visitor here and you think, wow, this church is really, I mean, look, they let anybody speak here, <laughs> right? However pathetic, but if we come and we offer it through Jesus, it's perfect. The passage goes on, and he quotes now that the stum- or the, let me just read it. I'll read it out loud here. See, I, say, uh, I, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusted him will never be put to shame. And then a little farther down, it's a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fail or fall. You see here, I've got to have my glasses on to see the back screen. He talks about um, rejected by humans. So here is this living stone that's meant to be a fulfillment of promise. God's goodness, mind-blowing goodness and grace offered up. And in First John, or excuse me, the Gospel of John puts that he came to those who were his own, but his own rejected him. And so, can you imagine? You, you, God's bringing the best gift, a gift that we can't even begin to comprehend, the blessing and because of hardness of heart or whatever, you reject it. it be, that stone that's meant to be a gift becomes like a stumbling block. It becomes something that... So it did for, for the Jewish leaders when Jesus was on earth. And, and there's still that pattern that's happening today. God is still offering the gift to a broader audience now. He's, he's demonstrating his heart has always been for all of humanity. So, and in the struggle that these people are having in Asia Minor, feeling like second-class citizens, never knowing when their rights are going to be deprived, possibly in fear of actual physical beatings and stuff, not like persecution we experience here, honestly. He reminds them Jesus was rejected, but he's become the living stone. And when we trust him... Now, getting down to these verses, he, he uses these words to sum it up, and he's giving us different lenses now to see the church. We're good sometimes, frankly, at being critical of the church. Not that we should never critique, but we're good at being critical. And perhaps Peter could have said, you know what your guys' problem is? Blah, 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 whatever that may be. He sees that they need encouragement. He wants them to see the reality of what God has done. Because you are a chosen people. Four things. Chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now, some of these are difficult for us, I think, to, to have emotive impact, right? A chosen people, the idea of that is that it's God's initiative. God has decided he picked. This is what's good news about the gospel because he doesn't just pick the people who we think are worthy or that we think, you know, have the right qualifications. God chooses based on what he wants and he will choose people like you and me and like our neighbors. So, 
You are a chosen people. We collectively, God has chosen us. A royal priesthood. It's almost like a, a combining of two words. And I think, you know, in our culture, we make such a big deal about, um, you know, that nobody is above anybody else. Even if you're the president, it's okay, you know, to trash him or whatever. Okay, I'm not getting into that. I'm just saying. But in their culture, there is a hierarchy. There's a caste system. And we can lose sight of the fact how precious it is, how amazing it is that we have been called children of God. And that idea of royalty is you're born into royalty. See, we've received a new birth. We're now children of God. Co-heirs with Christ, the Bible says. And we're just beginning to scratch our understanding of all that that means. But there, there we're royalty. Again, not because we're so special, because God chose us. He just wanted to make you and I royalty, to be related to Jesus. Priests, priests were, had, had, were a special class in Israel, and they served in the temple. They served in the presence of God, and they served and they did sacrifices to God, but also they did things on behalf of the people. See, worship is never just vertical. It's vertical and horizontal simultaneously. Priesthood. A priest has a vertical component and a horizontal component. As we gather corporately, we're not just a bunch of individuals who happen to be in the same place at the same time. As a house of priests, we are people who help one another, help usher us into that special place that we have before our God in heaven. To a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's a nation that, because of this new work that Christ has done, because of the new set of values, the new trajectory of their narrative, that it's not just about the here and now, but it's looking forward to the day when Christ is revealed. See, a holy nation that's set apart in that way. See, Peter wasn't suggesting in that context, certainly, that all those low-class citizens somehow go off and start their own commune, wear red shirts, that kind of thing. But he is representing, saying that they, they need to be different in the place that they're at. They're God's people, and they reflect God's priorities, reflect the work that God has done for them, a holy nation. And then God's special possession. I mentioned this in the mystery box. That in some translations, it was peculiar. But it, the idea is like, in a warehouse, there's all these different vases and things like that. But you're God's favorite. It's about God's affection and his love, his desire to pour out. Again, not favored because we're better. Favored because he chose us. Favored because he's doing something in us. You can see how for people who are suffering through difficulty... And trying to figure out, you know, their, their faith is wavering. As Peter speaks into their life and, and reminds them of who they are, whose they are, and the trajectory of their story, how it can make a difference for them. Real quickly, when we gather and worship, 
Because the passage goes on. I don't think I have it. Oh, no, it's right there. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, I'm going to just acknowledge up front. That's not necess- I don't think that's just necessarily talking about that, that latter part of that verse. When we get together and worship. Okay? It's talking about the totality of our corporate life together. Declares the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Okay? But, having said that, and because I've been a worship pastor, I want to say a few things about corporate worship together. One is, when we worship together, we are a house of priests. And it's not just an individual's coming before God, but we, remind, we continue to remind each other of who we are and whose we are, our shared narrative of what God is doing. We join the continual, never-ending worship of our God in heaven. Have you noticed when you read Scripture, and whether it's Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, I mean, these different, that for whatever reason, they're transported to heaven. And what do you see? An incredible worship service. When we gather in corporate worship, we are gathering with the principalities of the universe that are before God in heaven, worshiping him because of his unsurpassed greatness, glory, and goodness. We're joint. We're, we're a part of something bigger than we can see or know. We corporately give witness. When we gather for... We corporately give witness to God's glory. Evangelism is a team sport. I've just been struck this last couple of years how in all my growing up, we're always told evangelism is about personal responsibility. I have to know the four spiritual law. That's all good stuff. But a lot of evangelism in the Bible, even in, in, you can read between the lines in Peter's, he's saying, when we are the church, we give testimony to the goodness of God. Right? If you love one another, by this will all men know you are my, my disciples. All people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So Peter talks about love in his thing. He talks about being respectful of the authorities because what we want to do is help others to see the glory that is God. And when we gather and worship God, it is its own form of testimony to our community that what we stand for, that we believe that Jesus is coming back. The passage ends. says, Once you were not a people... See, Gentile people, they weren't part of Israel. I mean, they knew what that was like. You're not a people. You don't belong to God. He's reminding them that now you do belong to God. We belong to God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. My encouragement or my hope is that as church, what I've encouraged you to do today is to use a different pair of lenses as we gather. Allow that to inform our hearts. Allow that to inform our worship. Allow that to inform how we interact with one another, not just here, but throughout the week. Because we live out our lives before God, and Jesus Christ is coming back.
And he may not wait till after we die. Right? And that means something that impacts our life now. As the worship team comes forward, I want to close by reading from one of the best worship books in the whole Bible. Revelation. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen.